Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, I'm joined by two great guests to discuss a topic you probably know the term to, often called the trade deficit. So we're going to be discussing inputs and outputs in trade, exports and imports in the United States economic trade system with two awesome researchers. First, from the Mercatus Center of George Mason University, I have Dr. Christine McDaniel. She is a senior research fellow there. Uh, Dr. Christine, thank you so much for uh, zooming in over here to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And also joining us is uh, an Alex Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, Carla Jones, once again joining the Alec podcast. Carla, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Dan, for making the time for us. Yeah, of course. So uh, a big thing that the Mercatus Center does at George Mason University, if people aren't aware, is it tries to take a lot of academic ideas and, you know, nitty gritty, wonky policy ideas and applies them or showcases them to real world situations. So, Christine, you work on trade and immigration. You've spoken several times to our international relations task force on a lot of different ranging, a wide range of issues. So can you talk to our listeners about um, some of the work that you do and what you've uh, recently been researching with the trade deficit? Yeah, so thank you. I work, I'm an international trade economist and really an, an empirical trade economist. So I like data and numbers and, and you know, most of my career to date has really been uh, in government. And so I've spent a lot of time doing data and analysis, getting the best information and, and data and analysis possible to the policymakers so they can be more informed when they go into the policy discussions. One thing that's really jumped out at me lately is uh, more so than recently, uh, more so than in the past, has been how uh, often the trade deficit term comes up and how it's so misused. And economists get this and accountants get it. But for some reason, it's so hard for uh, so many other people, uh, like policymakers, to get it. And so I wanted to just write a piece that explained in really simple English what the trade deficit was. And just so we all know here, it's just the difference between the value of goods and services that we export to the rest of the world and the value of goods and services that we import from the rest of the world. And that's the trade balance. And U.S., uh, we import more than we export. And so we have a trade deficit. Other countries, they export more than they import. And so they have a trade surplus. But the only reason we, uh, we have a trade deficit is because we have um, a capital account surplus. So the, um, the U.S. has a pretty low saving rate. Uh, we're a very consumer-driven economy. And we have it's a very large, uh, growing thriving, dynamic economy, pretty safe bet for investment dollars from all over the world. Because we have such a low saving rate, we attract and we really need uh, dollars from um, the outside. And so those dollars pour in, those foreign investment dollars pour in, the capital pours in, it allows U.S. businesses to grow, to hire more people. We have a capital account surplus, a current account deficit, and that means we have a trade deficit. And so what there's some people, including one of our one of the senior uh, one of the trade policy advisors to the president, who continues to point to um, imports in the national accounting identity as a drag on GDP. And gross domestic product, GDP, 
is that's the total value of goods and services that a country provides, right? And, and gross domestic product is equal to government consumption, private consumption, investment, and exports. It's just pure accounting, right? It's, it's beyond dispute. But imports are a part of that consumption, right? So imports are a part of consumption. And as I said it in the paper, and to your listeners, you know, if you're in the car, just push pause and repeat that three times. Imports are a part of consumption. The only reason imports have a negative sign in front of them in the GDP accounting identity is because statisticians don't record consumption from domestically produced goods separately from consumption from imported goods. They only record consumption as a whole. And then they also record imports. So they have to subtract out the imports from consumption so they don't overcount. That's the only reason there is a negative sign in front of imports. Imports are just part of consumption. They are not a drag on GDP. So I wanted to write a piece that, you know, the commenter would understand. And so I'd like to say, I put it into those terms on, you know, it's like, if you don't recognize imports as consumption, that's like saying you're watching your calorie intake, except when you go through the drive-thru and you, you know, eat food from the drive-thru and you don't count that. Well, yes, you do count that. It's all consumption, right? And so I think there's a big misunderstanding about that. And um, I wanted to try to clear that up. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on an absolutely awesome op-ed in the Hill, the one that came out in April. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, congratulations. The trade deficit dream came true. We're going to make sure to include it in the notes. And the reason it left out at me was because it so perfectly refutes the popular narrative that trade deficits are comparable to budget deficits and to be avoided at all costs. So I want to congratulate you on that. Also, thank you for the several presentations you've made to our task force. You've done a great job educating our members. Now that you've explained why the trade deficit is not a measure by which we should, should assess trade policies, what is a good measure? Is there a metric by which we should judge our trade policy? Or is it more just seeing how the overall economy responds? Well, so trade is not something like that's necessarily good or bad. I mean, trade is just something that, you know, so for your listeners that are lawmakers, you know, you guys have firms in your districts, states, constituencies. These guys are trading, they're importing, exporting, not because they they like trade per se, or they like a particular country, or they don't like a particular country. They're doing it because, you know, that's how they maximize their bottom line and grow their businesses and hire more workers, right? So to focus on trade is like focusing on the, the tail that's wagging the dog, right? The tail, trade is not the dog. Trade is not the business. It's not the economy. It's just what extra kind of is like left over for things that have, it's like the, think of it as the residual, right? So, you know, the export markets are great because you can, it basically grows your market, and imports are great because you can consume things that somebody can uh, produce more competitively abroad. You know, you ask a, a company that's, you know, might be importing some intermediate inputs, you know, they just do that because that's the most cost competitive thing for them to do. And that allows them to grow their business and hire more people here at home. So 
I think the best thing to do is just really, you just don't, you don't have to really think about it per se. You just want to do what your companies need you to do in terms of set the rules, right? The government's role is to set the rules and then you get out of the way and you let, you know, you let the companies do what they need to do. The best measure is really, you know, how innovative, how competitive uh, your firms are, how um, the the wages in your, um, you know, the GDP per capita or wages in in, um, in industries, you know, those have, those were all growing, you know, before COVID-19, you know, our unemployment rate was at the lowest rate, you know, in decades. We are one of the most innovative, most competitive countries. Uh, those are the kinds of metrics to look at, you know, and, and then growth rates, of course. The trade balance is, again, like the, the tail wagging the dog. It's not something you focus on. And it really is just a reflection of um, lots of capital, lots of uh, dollars flowing into the U.S. to invest in the U.S. economy, U.S. businesses and U.S. workers. So, Christine, if we shouldn't focus on the trade deficits, or rather, maybe not we, maybe governments, governments shouldn't focus on the trade deficit, um, what should government or maybe just people at large focus on when discussing trade and, quote unquote, imbalances? Well, if you, if, if you really, really, really don't like the, the fact that the U.S. has a trade deficit, then you, know, you need to save more. Right. And if, if the U.S. government as a whole or the U.S. public as a whole does not want to borrow so money for, much money from abroad, then we need to, as a society, change our behavior uh, and we need to start saving more and fund more of that investment ourselves. You know, that, that's you know, that's not up to me. I mean, that's that's a, a, a society uh, decision. The U.S. can afford to have a low saving rate because, you know, on the margin, the U.S. is such a competitive, high growth innovative economy that um, you know, we, we attract um, investment dollars from all over the world. So it really helps to fund our consumer-driven economy. But if society as a whole decides that they don't want to do that anymore, then you know, we can, um, I mean, the government could, they could change tax policy. They could, there's, there's a lot of uh, mechanisms, levers in the, in the tax code to decrease the incentive to consume and increase the incentive to save. So one thing that's often, you know, not perplexing, but sometimes we get confusion with or a question is that we have a really vibrant, popular international relations task force at ALEC. And ALEC is an organization that focuses on state policy and state issues, state solutions. And I, I know why Carla thinks uh, state lawmakers should care about international trade. And I'm sure she'll follow up to give her own thoughts and kind of give you know, reflect back to you, Christine, um, what she has seen from different state lawmakers. Um, but I'm curious from you, from your perspective, why do you think state lawmakers, different local decision makers, or maybe even governors should care about international trade? Because trade is a way for their businesses to grow. Trade, you know, by facilitating their firms in their districts and constituencies' um, ability to access foreign markets. That's a way for their businesses to grow their sales, to grow their firm, to hire more people, to allow the firms and businesses and manufacturers in their in their states to uh, be able to source from the most competitive place, whether that's next door or across the world, uh, whatever it takes uh, for those firms to stay cost competitive. You've got to help, you know, stay out of their way 
um, get the barriers out of their way and let them do what they need to do. Um, you know, their their incentives um, is, you know, just include staying in business and growing and making money. So that really just means setting the rules that largely comes from the federal government. And then, but there are things at the state, at the state level you can do uh, to, again, you know, reduce little rules and regulations that can kind of cause sand in the wheels, if you will, make it, and, you know, just make it a little bit easier for firms to access the um, goods and services they need from abroad, and then make it a little bit easier for them to access those foreign markets uh, so they can uh, grow their bottom line as well. I'd like to echo everything that Christine said, and I would just add that while state lawmakers don't have jurisdiction over negotiating trade agreements, they're the ultimate stakeholders. No state isn't touched by trade, whether it's a rural state where 25% of agricultural products produced in the United States are exported, or a state like California, where at least pre-COVID, roughly 5 million jobs were supported by international trade. If small to medium-sized to large businesses want to reach consumers, well, 95% of those consumers live beyond our borders. It's almost like a unilateral disarmament not to sell to the world's consumers. And it would be irresponsible for a state to ignore how much it its economy could benefit from international trade. And then you add to that the job creation potential of like foreign direct investment. You got a state like South Carolina where a South Carolinian is just as likely, in fact, more likely to work at BMW as they are to work at Boeing, even though Boeing has a plant there. And not only do jobs come from foreign direct investment overseas companies creating manufacturing facilities in the United States, but training programs that are state-of-the-art training programs where other countries are basically teaching American workers for the jobs of the future. So that's why I think state lawmakers should and frankly do care about international trade. Well said. So uh, do you think the current crisis is going to lead to any lasting changes uh, in trade policy? Carla and Christine on that one. I'll let Carla go first on that one. <laughs> what I'm hoping is that the economic downturn will spur us to permanently get rid of the tariffs that have been enacted over the past three years. That's one hope. I'm also hopeful that Congress will reassert its role with respect to making trade policy. That's something that they've basically been abdicating for decades, but it's, I think, become even more pronounced over the last few years. Those are the only two things that I think maybe will happen in the future but I'm sure Christine has more ideas. So economists are awful at making predictions. So I'm definitely not going to, I'm not going to start, uh, but you know, you can look back and see what has happened in previous crises and then how countries and firms have, have dealt with it. The, um, in terms of trade policy, 
it, it does seem like we are we're going to keep heading down this rabbit hole on more and more trade restrictions, at least for a while. But I think it, at some point, it, um, like we have seen in the past, when things get really bad, countries realize that the only way to dig themselves out of that hole is through trade and investment, right? Letting capital, goods, services, ideas, people move across borders and help grow the economy. So if history repeats itself, I think we probably will get there. But in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of talk about increased resiliency, which is interesting because it kind of goes against the grain of lean manufacturing and agility that we've seen in a lot of global supply chains over the past couple of decades, especially since China joined the World Trade Organization. We've seen you know, increased fragmentation of global supply chains, um, lean manufacturing, and that doesn't lend itself to holding big inventories. You know, now a lot of uh, manufacturers are talking about, well, gee, you know, maybe we start, start, we're starting to need to hold more inventories, but you know, that's costly. It's not really efficient. I was listening to some auto industry observers and close watchers the other day, and they were saying that, you know, there could this could go a few ways, right? They could one, it could just be status quo, and they just deal with it on a case by case basis. Number two, we could see massive reshoring, uh, but that's likely to come with a lot of automation, right? And then, or three, we could see a lot more diversification. So instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, you want to put lots of eggs in lots of different baskets, right? And so uh, so you might have not everything in, in China, for example, you have, you know, you, you stretch it out across a few countries in Asia, you stretch it out across a few countries in Latin America, stretch it out across a few countries in Europe. So you're really, you know, just diversifying a bit, diversifying your supply chain a bit. Um, so kind of what someone's called plump lean manufacturing or lean manufacturing plus. So, um, but you know, well, we'll see how that goes. It's one thing to talk about reshoring and holding big inventories, but that's very costly. And, you know, the, the world's going to be hungry for capital and, um, and not have a lot of room for um, inefficiencies moving forward. So um, what sounds good right now, you know, in practice may look kind of different in the future. But like Carla said, I mean, it, you know, we, we um, have gotten out of major crises before through international economics, international business, trade, 95%, like Carla said, 95% of the world's consumers live outside our borders. So you can't ignore that. That's a reality. It may not sound very appealing today when all these bad things feel like they're happening to us from the outside, but a lot of good has come from the outside too. And, um, you know, I think there'll be a balanced approach moving forward and firms will figure it out as they go along. I'm really hopeful that we do engage more globally as opposed to like some thought leaders are talking about pulling out or eliminating the WTO, which I, I can't even imagine how bad that would be for international trade. Yeah, well, I, I'm really glad you mentioned um, cooperation and global and maybe even regional cooperation. You know, one thing that's come out of this has been the, the heightened need for, for cross-border cooperation. For instance, look at the U.S. auto, well, the North American auto industry, the global auto industry. But for North America, if if the, the U.S. can declare automotives essential manufacturing, but unless Canada and Mexico also declare that sector essential manufacturing, then the U.S. auto sector is essentially, you know, <laughs> dead in the water, right? For a car 
uh, to be built here in North America or in the U.S. It goes back and forth across the U.S.-Canada border, across the U.S.-Mexico border so many times, in some cases dozens of times. So that means that all these three countries that are so interconnected, for example, just in the auto sector, they all have to be on the same page and cooperate about post-COVID, you know, COVID recovery policies, procedures, what is essential manufacturing? It doesn't make sense for one country to declare something essential, but then other if the other two countries don't, then nobody can really move. So the only way we're going to get out of this is co to cooperate with our neighbors and ultimately the world. And one of my pet peeves on trade is that people emphasize the importance of exports, ignoring the value and opportunities of imports and foreign direct investment, like I alluded to with the South Carolina example. Are there ideas about trade that you want to get out to America? This podcast is across the state. So here's your chance to tell America beyond the beltway what you want them to understand about trade. So trade is just another way of buying and selling. It's just instead of doing it with people inside the border, you're doing it with people across the border. And when there's tariffs, that means there's extra taxes and that means expenses are gonna go up. There is really no getting around it that the world is global. There really is no going back to doing everything at home. And uh, we are gonna have to get through this crisis. The only way we can do it is to do it together and to grow out of the crisis, we're going to have to use trade and investment and foreign direct investment to grow our way out of the crises. And just remember, people trade, governments don't trade. The government's role is to set the rules that they need to step back and let firms and workers figure it out on their own. Americans have always been great at that. They'll continue being great at that. And the U.S. government just needs to get out of the way and let them do that. Well, that does bring us to the end of our segment today. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds. You've been listening to Alec Across the States. We've had Dr. Christine McDaniel, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. Dr. McDaniel, thank you so much for everything you've been talking about today. I'm sure all our listeners are going to really enjoy it. Thank you so much. And also we have Carla Jones, Alec's senior director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force. Thanks, Carla. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Christine. Thank you so much, Carla. And if you are interested in having your ideas featured on Alec Across the States, do not hesitate to email me at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alex States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.